Welcome. If you're here for the first time this morning or the first of a few times and haven't had the chance to visit our Welcome Center right there, I want to invite you to do that at the end of the morning. Clay Petzold, I think the beans will be there with Clay to meet you and answer any questions that you might have. Uh, we'd also like to send you with a little pack of information about who we are. We are not the only church in town. We're not the best church in town. I don't know that there is such a thing because they're different, and that's okay. And we celebrate that. We pray for other churches every week. We're going to pray collectively here in a moment. But we don't try and put ourselves out there as the best church in town or the place that you have to go or you don't love Jesus. That's just, that's just not right. Um, but we want to put in front of you who we are. So as you're praying through, as you're seeking God's will for you and your family maybe of where to, make a, where to be planted in a church home, you'll have the information in front of you about who we are. So I invite you to do that. If you're here for the first time, we're glad that you've shared your morning with us. And uh, for the rest of you that are here regularly, I'm glad you're here too. So this is our church family gathering. So it's a delight and a treat to gather. I'm looking forward to how we're going to spend these next few minutes. Let's begin these next few minutes together um, with prayer specifically, particularly about this sermon and about and for our local churches. Let's pray. God, before we ask some specifics about this this message that we're going to consider, Lord, I want us to have the chance to pray for our, our brothers and sisters in the faith, uh, our sister churches all over this community. Lord, we are thankful that we are saturated, a community that's saturated with church families. The bride is in every direction, and it is a delight and a blessing uh, for us to have the chance to lift up our brothers and sisters in the faith this morning, lift up our other churches, and ask you, Lord, to be great and mighty in and through them. Lord, I pray for churches that are, are doing the best that they can to hang on, maybe even what they might feel like is struggling, that they can see themselves as you see them as the bride of your son. That they can trust that they are about a great and mighty kingdom advancing work and that they'll be faithful in the small things that you put in front of them. Lord, I pray that they can see themselves as you see them as meaningful, um, as um, representatives of you in a community. Um, Lord, I just pray for those struggling churches that um, may be trying to make sense of today and tomorrow, Lord, that they will be encouraged um, is a privilege to lift them up this morning. For the other churches that maybe, um, maybe have seating capacity issues, Lord, we celebrate that as well. Just as much as we celebrate the church that's, that's struggling and working really hard to keep it together, we celebrate the churches that you seem to be moving in and through in a mighty way, Lord. We just pray that that would continue. We pray that they won't have room to seat everybody. And we pray ultimately that you will get every bit of glory for that. I pray that the kingdom will be advanced and that you'll be famous in our community as we cheer for one another as the churches in this community. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray about, uh, specifically about this sermon. I feel the burden of another sermon that could be very, very dangerous, very difficult to process. I'm thankful and excited about what I believe it is at this point, Lord. I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts and minds and equip us with an understanding in seeing this matter of sin and 
putting sin to death and walking in power in our lives. I pray that we will see this the way you see it. I pray that in the way that I communicate it, the way I preach in these next few minutes, that I represent this as you see this. And Lord, I pray that we will be blessed as a result. I pray that we'll be able to walk in understanding, hope, patience, endurance, faithfulness. I entrust this time to you and this sermon to your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Ezekiel 36. I have a handful of places that we're going to turn this morning, but Ezekiel 36 is a good starting point. Ezekiel 36. I shared a passage last week. Our sermon last week was about the power that we have walking in this new covenant Um, walking in the age that we walk in, this side of Christ. And this is a passage that I didn't share last week, but it's a delightful passage about what we have now as New Testament, New Covenant uh, believers, believers that are walking this side, worshipers of God that are walking this side of Christ. Listen to this passage, Ezekiel 35. It takes you a little while to find Ezekiel. I still hear pages turning. That's okay. It's not not a typical go-to passage. Ezekiel 36 Beginning in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. These words are like the words that we considered last week from Jeremiah, written hundreds of years before Christ, pointing towards something that was going to come to fruition in Christ. It's a new covenant prophecy. It's about the wonderful age that we live in. That's what we considered last week and enjoyed together, that we are in this age that was prophesied here in Ezekiel, other places like Jeremiah, that we're walking in this age as we walk this side of Christ. As of Pentecost 2,000 years ago, where the Holy Spirit, who had been moving with God's people, then moved into God's people, as of 2,000 years ago, what God promised here is realized for us. We are walking in this age now. For those that are united to Christ by faith, we have been cleansed of all of our uncleannesses because we're wearing His cleanness. We have been given a new heart and we have been given a new spirit as God has put His spirit within us profound age that we walk in. As a result of this indwelling spirit, he then, he says, he causes us to walk in his ways and obey his rules. Really, really awesome stuff to consider. It's a really amazing age that we walk in. It's wonderfully good news. I hope you would agree. So I'm just wondering, how's this going for you? How you doing with this? How you doing with the walking in his ways part? 
and obeying his rules. I mean, the Holy Spirit has moved in. It's a pretty tidy little passage here. After trusting Christ, we have the Holy Spirit moving in, so we are now caused to walk in his ways and obey his rules. After trusting Christ, what I've found is that in some ways we make our list imaginary or real. You know, mine's real. I like to have a real physical list. We make our list of sin in our lives and we just kind of start ticking them off, right? Some people like to put checks by their stuff. I like to put a little block because I like to fill my block in when I'm done with it. It Just something is is sort of therapeutic for me when I get to fill in a block. Something especially satisfying about that. It's really, I've found a cinch dealing with sin that may have made deep ruts in your lives for decades. Right? Anybody else? It's a cinch for me. It's a snap dealing with sin that you may have learned from your parents from your earliest days. Maybe even the days that you're learning how to walk and speak Or dealing with sin that you may have learned from your friends and have walked in for years. And sin that with every fiber of your being you may feel a magnetic pull back into. It's really a cinch and a snap to deal with those things. Just to fill in that block or put that check by that, right? It's a breeze I've found walking away from something that you may have been doing for more of your life than you haven't. (laughs) Right? Anybody else agree with all that? A cinch, a snap, a breeze. It's a piece of cake. I got to throw out a little cake language there. It's a piece of cake too now with the Holy Spirit within us to walk in his statutes and to obey his rules. I think all of us would agree. I like too that God has given, or that, that, that we have a God that makes this easy for us by scolding us, by rebuking us, by mocking us, and even snickering when we fail. Because I find that that really compels me to want to work even harder. Don't you? It's almost as if God is never satisfied. Something about that just compels me to press on. Right? Can everybody agree with this? It's almost as if he's never satisfied. It just, I just find that that really helps me. I find that that's really encouraging for me. It's like that coach that never says, good job. Something about it just makes me want to work so much harder. Or that teacher that never gives kudos. Or that parent that never says, I'm proud of you, son. Inspiring, isn't it? Or that boss that never says an encouraging word about your work. Something about the unreachable and unattainable praise and encouragement that fuels me to press on and to work hard walking in his statutes and obeying his rules. That's what I've found anyway. I don't know about you. So how's this going for you? That's the way it's going for me, knocking out that list. Just checking them off, boy, filling those blocks in. It's exhilarating. If you're like me, you probably can relate to this. Don't you hate those people? Um, actually, I should rephrase that because that was on my list and not hating anymore. I've already checked that block. Don't you hate 
putting up with those people, I should say, who just can't seem to get stuff checked off their list. Golly, what a beatdown, right? Those people, I wish they would just listen to a sermon for a change. (laughs) Or preach one. Because that's the way it plays out for me. When I've preached it, or I've heard it, man, it's on. I mean, I'm living it, right? Everybody else agree with that? Man, it's rubber to the road, pedal to the metal. I wish these folks would just listen to a sermon for a change. Aren't you wishing those folks would do that? Because they're just such a beat down. I wish that they would connect to the Holy Spirit power like the rest of us. I hope by this point you know, you may not know that because you may be here for the first time thinking, where did I show up to? (laughs) I hope you know by now that I'm being facetious because who lives like this? Really? Whose lives and faith and worship really plays out like this? I've been convicted about and thought about how many sermons I could stand and preach and expose and walk away with giving the impression that it's a cinch. Just get your you-know-what together. And man, I've been bathing this sermon in prayer. I want to present this topic that we're considering today in a way that God sees it. I want us to deal with this in these next few minutes the way God sees this. If you're like me, You see all kinds of stuff in your lives that don't reconcile with union with the Holy Son of God. If we're really honest. You likely see those things. If you don't see it, trust me, the other people that are around you see it in you. And it's there. So what are we to do with this? Big promises from Ezekiel, big amazing promises, and the finest of ages that we live in. I was trying to process last week what we considered was these, these, these realities that we, that, that we walk in and this age that we live in and this power that we live in, and I was expecting just sort of us all to just sort of be raptured and, and this singing volume level where we'd have to put our fingers in our ears because it's so loud and it's just sort of kind of flat afterwards, and I'm realizing because we're honest. How does this play out? I don't think there's any person in the room that didn't agree after last week that we had this ability, but these big promises and this amazing age that we live in and this indwelling Holy Spirit, yet in our lives we see this stuff that we know shouldn't be there. So how do we deal with it? There are three ways, three things that I'm going to offer here in the next few minutes. There are probably other ways. This is not the total summation of the ways to deal with that. But these are three things that I'll offer. The first of the three is, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You can turn there. Please, I want to hear some pages. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want, to, I want you to see it. I don't want to offer something to you that you're not seeing is in there. And I'm going to be dealing with some language in this passage. So I want you to see it like eyeballs on it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of context for the Corinthian church. You've likely heard us in these last few weeks. We've been dealing with union with Christ the last couple of months, and it's, it's interesting how often Corinthians comes up. The Corinthian church was a mess. I don't know of any other church in the New Testament that had the catalog of issues that they had going on in their church family. All kinds of crazy stuff going on. 
And it's in that context that Paul, God is speaking through Paul and giving them these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. God, through Paul, says to this church that is swamped with sin. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The first of the three things that I want you to think on this morning and consider in dealing with how to walk uh, in this power in our lives is to enjoy the word able. The word in this passage is word used a couple different times, a couple different ways in verses 13. In verse 13 is that, that you will not be tempted beyond your ability. And then the last phrase, that you may be able to endure it. The root word there is the Greek word dunamai, which means power. It's where dynamite comes from. You may have heard that used before. It's used in this case. You could rephrase both of those those passages, or you could rephrase this passage and say, He will not let you be tempted beyond your power. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you will have the power to endure it. It's a power word, and it's a welcome word, and seeing it here in this passage should be welcoming and helpful to us, and knowing that this went to a church that was swamped with sin, Paul's reminding them that they had the ability to not live that way. Lots of stuff in their lives, and likely, if we're honest, lots of stuff in our lives that don't reconcile with union with Christ. And first of all, it's important to know that we had the ability to not live that way. These words in 1 Corinthians couldn't have been in 1 Chronicles. These words written this side of Christ to God's people could not have been written in Exodus or Leviticus because we're living in that age that was prophesied through Ezekiel, through Jeremiah, where the Holy Spirit has moved in. We are living in an age where the Holy Spirit has given us an ability that we need to, first of all, enjoy. One of the first steps to walking in this power is to realize that you have the power to deal with sin in your lives. And these words couldn't have been written to those on the other side of Christ. Look at the context in this passage. Let's pan out a little bit. And we've read verse 13. Let's start in verse 1 and see what he's saying here. Let's develop the argument just for a moment, just to consider where this word of encouragement fits in. In verse 1, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. He's pointing back before Christ. Our fathers being the Israelites. He's pointing this church back to the old Israel. Look back there on the, other side of Christ, on the other side of Christ. Our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. You know the story of the Exodus. They're baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Christ is moving with them in the wilderness. Not in them. Let me distinguish that. With them. Nevertheless, with most of them, most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, this side of Christ, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must, put, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. This side of Christ, that stuff happened over there and it was recorded and written down for our benefit. Therefore, let anyone thinks that he stands take heed of what's being said here, lest he fall. And then he goes into the passage I just read. No temptation has overtaken you, this side of Christ, that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you, this side of Christ, be tempted beyond your ability. He's saying you guys have something, this side of Christ, that those, your fathers over there on the other side of Jesus, did not have. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The first step to walking in his power is to realize that you have the power. Walking in the new covenant should give you real hope that you may be able to endure temptation. He not only provided a way of escape, he provided the ability to endure it. <clears throat> Years ago, 1985 was a specific year. I don't know. I didn't remember that. I had to look that up. A movie came out, a Clint Eastwood movie. I was in high school. That was my senior year. And uh, a movie came out called Pale Rider. Clint Eastwood, for those Charles Bronson, Clint Eastwood genre people, you know exactly what I'm talking about, John Adele, others, I just know, you're just like, oh, yeah, I know that movie, I know every detail. We tested John Adele this week, and he amazingly knew some details that, that I was amazed that just off the, off of, Aaron called him and put him on speaker, and he knew it, he just nailed it. This movie was greatness, though. It was 1985, Clint Eastwood, let me give you a little bit of context before I share this story. What this movie is about was about this little prospector village, little community of prospectors that are panning for gold on a little river. Okay, it's back in the cowboy days. <clears throat> and um, they're being pressured by the surrounding mining company. Uh, I forget that the mining company is Coy LaHood Mining Company. Sounds like a Western. Sounds like a Clint Eastwood movie. Coy LaHood Mining Company. So Coy LaHood and his boys are pinching this little prospector village, because they want that property. Okay. Meanwhile, the prospectors are just trying to hang on. And they're starting to put, use some little scare tactics and things like that. And, they, and actually, the, the point where you meet Clint Eastwood happens right after they kill a little puppy dog that belongs to a little girl that lives in the village. Okay. And she's, she runs off into the woods, and she's crying, and Clint Eastwood comes Comes riding his horse by. And Clint Eastwood, at this point, you, know, you, you may not realize, if you haven't seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. He, he, he is a minister. He's dressed up like a minister. Now, whether he actually is a minister or not, I don't know that the movie ever really discloses that. He was nearly killed by some bad guys. He survived somehow. And then the next scene, you see him wearing minister clothes. Got a little um, collar. He's got a cool minister hat, though. He doesn't look like a goober. I mean, like a cool cowboy version of a minister hat. And he's riding his horse like Clint does and riding it through the woods. And this little girl sees him. She invites him into the village. He comes into the village. He lives with them for a period of time. He sees what's going on with being pressured from the mining company. But he's going to help him out for a period of time. They're begging him to do that, so he's going to do that. Now, that's the big story. Now, embedded within that story, a guy named Hull Barrett. 
Hull, another Clint Eastwood Western kind of name, Hull Barrett, is the dad of one of the families that's living in this little prospector village. And Hull Barrett, every day when everybody else is going out to pan for gold, Hull Barrett would take this big old hammer and he'd go out there and hit this big boulder that was in the stream bed. And he'd hit this big boulder and he'd just, I mean, just every day you see a picture, this, you have this visual that's developing that's in some ways a metaphor of the story that you realize afterward. You know, this, this mining company is big, this big boulder that there's no way you're going to defeat them. And Hull is out there hitting on this rock. It's a nice little metaphor. But Hull, I'd share this story because Hull, something about this, this guy, perseveres hitting something that you think that's never going to break. And toward the end of the movie or toward the climax, just when they go defeat the, the uh, mining company and defend themselves and Clint Eastwood saves the day, the pale rider, um, Hull goes out there, and he hits the rock, and he actually fractures it, breaks it, and finds a big, huge golden nugget underneath it. Okay, so again, it's a metaphor of the story. The reason I share Hull's story is because in some ways, I think Hull is a great image of who we should be as we walk in his power. See, Hull believed that the rock was breakable. He went out there and hauled off a hitting that thing every single day. And not only did he believe it was breakable, he believed that there was something underneath it, some sort of treasure on the other side of this work that would be worth the work. And I think that he beautifully illustrates what life should be like for us in this journey of faith, that some things we see in our lives as these big boulders that I will never be able to reconcile with this thing. I will never be able to put this into death. I'll never be able to deal with this thing. But believing that you have the ability is the first key, that that rock can be fractured and that there are blessings on the other side of that will give you endurance and will give you patience and they will fuel you with the hope that you need as you keep walking in and after holiness. I thought about sort of rephrasing this 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 passage in light of this illustration. I'm not one to rewrite scripture, and I think that's not a good idea. It doesn't need to be rewritten. But contextualizing it is a good thing. No rock has been presented to you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not give you a boulder that can't be broken. Even when you're looking at a big one. I'm going to make it a western. Even when you're looking at a big one, know that it's breakable. He will break that thing with your licks in his time and on his terms and for his glory. So keep hitting that rock. Able is a good and welcome word. It's one that we need to see. It's one that we need to know is an undercurrent around and behind and undergirding this work. It's one we should hold dear He's not called us to something that's impossible. The rock can be broken and there's treasure underneath. The second thing I want to encourage you in this morning, the first is to enjoy the word able. The second is to walk in his design. Turn over to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to kind of keep you in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to share a passage from Genesis while you're turning there. Because I'm going to use this passage as context, showing you what Paul does with this church that's beset with sin. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 say this. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Whenever you've heard this passage or when you've read this passage before, I bet you've done exactly what I did with my language there. I emphasized the tree not to eat from. Did you hear me emphasize that? Think about that. I don't know that I would read that passage without doing that because it sounds pretty emphatic. Do not eat from this tree, for in the day that you do, you will surely die. But did you hear what else he told him in that passage? Eat from all these trees. I'm going to read it again with an emphasis on that. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Have you ever heard anybody read it that way? I don't know that I ever have. But in these next few minutes, I want you to think about how that was read. And I want you to realize that when God told them not to eat from one single tree, he invited them to partake of a whole garden full of fruit-bearing trees. Every don't that he ever gives us, he gives us embedded within a sea of dews. Can you imagine what this command must have been like for them? The Arboretum is a favorite place for us to go as a family, or one of our favorite places that we go often, just to walk, out, walk around and enjoy the beauty of the garden. Can you imagine an Arboretum that you're actually given dominion over, that you're actually given a charge to work and tend, that you can actually walk around and eat fruit from every fruit-bearing tree in the garden? How delightful and glorious That must have been a garden filled with every kind of tree and every kind of fruit imaginable hanging from every branch. What blessings and what delight. And then there's one little tiny little old don't embedded within a sea of dews. If you're going to walk in his power, I believe you have to realize that he has charged you, actually commanded you to walk in his design And that there's a sea of dues for every don't. Walking in his designs means first realizing anytime he's called you not to do something, he gives you something so wonderfully satisfying to do. Instead, it'll make you wonder why you settled on the wrong tree. I'll show you this in 1 Corinthians. If you're there already, 1 Corinthians 5. We're just going to look at the sweep of three chapters, and I'm not going to read a lot of Scripture. In fact, the headings sort of guide us. 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to really spend some time with the Corinthian church today. Paul has already encouraged this Corinthian church with their ability. He's already said, okay, church that is, is, is dealing with a, a swamp and a sea of sin, know, first of all, that you're able to not walk that way. You're able to live lives that aren't like that. And then secondly, he takes them to this design. Look how this unfolds in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is a, is a tragic chapter of something that's going on in the Corinthian church. If you can read it, I'll let you read it because we have some of our little ones in with us today. I'm not going to read it because it's that graphic. But I want to just summarize it saying there's sexual immorality going on in the church and the church is not dealing with it. 
They're not holding this person accountable that is participating in unrepentant, hear me say that, unrepentant sexual sin. It's defiling the church, and this unrepentant dude is not being held accountable by the church. Now, let me say this. There's so much airtime given to sexual immorality in the book of 1 Corinthians that you have to wonder, is the reason they're not being held accountable is because the rest of the church is dealing with sexual immorality as well. This church gets so much air, or sexual morality gets so much airtime in this letter, you have to wonder, are the rest of these people not holding this guy accountable because they're living in unrepentant sexual immorality as well? Look where chapter 6 goes. Chapter 5 is this, the context of the problem. Here's the problem, sexual immorality in the church. Look what happens in chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and we will also, and, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He's using union language here. You are in union with Christ. Do you not know that, Corinthian church? Shall I then take the members of Christ who are in union with Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He's dealing with sexual immorality in this church, and he uses some pretty graphic language here. Now, whether the prostitution was going on there or what kind of sexual immorality was going on, it's figurative in this case because he's saying members. Do you take the members of Christ? You are the members of Christ. He's talking about each of them. Shall I take you and make you members of a prostitute? Singular. He's speaking figuratively of the world. Are you going to be in union with the world after you've been in union with Christ? Are you going to be in union with sexual immorality and the worst that the world has to offer? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. He's using union language. You're in union with Christ, so you are not to walk in union with the world. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? He's talking about the nature of this union if we walk in the world. For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. That's tragic. But he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality then. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In chapter 5, he's acknowledged the problem, sexual immorality in the church, and likely it's rampant because this sexual, sexually immoral guy is so, this vile sexual morality is not being dealt with by everybody else. So you have to wonder, is it all over the church? And there in that chapter 6, he says, flee from this thing because you're in union with Christ, not in union with that. Don't eat from that tree because you're in union with Christ, not in union with the world. That's the don't. Now, look at chapter 7. This is the do. Chapter 7. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likely the wife to her husband, or likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This passage is fascinating. It's fascinating. It's so telling. The first verse is what the Corinthian church has done. Apparently, they realize they have a problem. We have a problem with sexual sexual immorality in our church. So here's their solution. Look at verse 1. They've written, or Paul has heard, that they are now saying in their church, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, so that's the solution? You've got an appetite problem. You're running to the world, and you're united to the world when you should be faithful and in fidelity to Christ, united to him. So the solution is just you're not going to be with a woman at all? That's going to make it difficult to fulfill the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply, by the way. (laughs) Let's just talk math. That's going to make that kind of hard. But let's deal with what they're saying here. They do the same thing that you, I bet you, have done in a diet a million times. What we do in dieting is we say, man, I've got this amazing appetite for for this food, so I'm just going to not eat. And how long does that work? You get a couple days, you get a week maybe where you're starving yourself, and then you just go in there and you binge. Ah, anything that stands still gets eaten. People better move out of the way or they're going to get bitten. (laughs) Try staving off your appetites, stiff-arming your appetites, ignoring your appetites, and see how that works out for you. Those appetites are God-given. Let me say that. God gave you those appetites. God gave a man a desire to be with a woman. It's part of the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And the answer is not to just abstain or asceticism. Let's just be a bunch of Stoics and just say no to everything. That's not going to work. Instead, instead of not eating from that one tree and just not eating at all, go eat from all the rest of the trees you got a garden full to eat from. Let me point you to the rest of the garden. Because in the middle of this, where this one don't sits, it's surrounded by a bunch of do's. And the do in this passage, the answer to sexual immorality for a man that's struggling with lust, and adult, or uh, sexual immorality in general, is a wife. It's genius. And it's simple and it's beautiful. Christy and I were talking, uh, Christy, I'm about, about to put my glasses, about, about to take them off, I already got them off. Christy and I were talking about this this week. And she said, well, okay, th- this is good for a husband, a guy that's married, but what kind of encouragement do you have for a guy that's not married, struggling with adultery? Let's see what Paul's encouragement for a man that's not married, that's struggling with sexual immorality. Let's see, in verse 2, because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Women can struggle with this too. And the solution for the wife is get a husband. The solution for a man is get a wife. And for a young man that's, uh, you know, at an age where he can marry, Paul would say, get married. <laughs> if you're looking for that soulmate, 
I don't really see that developed in God's word, okay? If you're going to hold out for that soulmate that you've been dreaming about for the rest of your life, that perfect gal, you're going to marry her and find out. If you think you found her, you're going to marry out and find her. There is no such thing. I'm not talking settle for just a, a warm body. But maybe being expeditious about it, I'm struggling with sexual immorality. Maybe I need to get a wife. That would be Paul's encouragement. Maybe I need a wife. And maybe I can participate in a garden full of trees. Or for a man that's married to walk in this design. Man, it's a beautiful, beautiful teaching here. Think about this. First of all, if if you're not married and you're struggling with this and you're old enough to get married, get married. Secondly, if you are married, be available for one another. Imagine that. Be available for one another. Be ever available. With really the emphasis that he's saying here. Be ever available for one another so that Satan does not win. He's dealing with the most magnetic sin that I know of. Do you know of any more magnetic sin than sexual immorality? I don't know of one that's any more magnetic and any more, anyone that fools more people. And how many times have you thought this, whether you've said it or not, you've heard about a friend or a family member or a loved one or whoever that's fallen to sexual immorality, and your first thought was, what was he thinking? What was she thinking? And if you actually have the guts to ask them, they go, well, I wasn't. It's the most magnetic, brainless sin, illogical sin that you can think of. And Paul says the answer to that, Paul knows this thing is magnetic. God knows it's magnetic. And God's answer that he shares with us through Paul is, get a wife. There's a garden full of fruit-laden trees. Go enjoy the garden of a real woman in your wife. And walking in his design will, by design, help you defend yourselves against Satan's temptations. The best defense against that one magnetic tree is a good offense, enjoying the garden full of trees of his beautiful design. I think this principle applies to many things. This isn't a sex sermon. It's just about the design. Paul takes a church that's struggling with sexual immorality to his design. He points out that there is a problem in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, he calls them to flee from it. And then chapter 7, he says, look at the garden full of trees that you can enjoy. Get a wife. Be with your wife. The principle applies to so many things. If you're down on your husband, ladies... If you're keenly aware of his shortcomings, I know this happens every, every now and again for a lady. I know it happens. If you're having a tough time imagining how in the world you're going to put up with that dude for another year, another day, another decade, what tree are you eating from would be my question. Who are you spending time with? Are you spending time with other gals who are also down on their husbands, bad-mouthing their, their husbands? You know gals get together and do that sometimes, guys. Gals, we're on to you. We know that you do that at times. I don't see much of that in this church, but I know it happens. I know it happens. Instead of eating from that tree, walk in his design of spending some time with an older Titus II lady. Older women teach what is good and train the young women to love their husbands. Walking in his design is beautiful and there are blessings in store. You struggle with gossip. Instead of eating from that tree that's usually 
eaten from in groups. There's a garden full of blessing. Ephesians chapter two or chapter four verse twenty nine says, "Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear." There's a garden full of opportunity for us with our words, words of building up and encouragement and edification, to give grace to those who hear. It's a garden full of His design. Name the boulder. I I believe with everything in me. If you look close enough, you will find a host of blessings. In God's design, with every don't, he gives wonderful dues that aren't blessings imposters like the fruit from that one tree. Because it doesn't deliver, does it? Ever. The fruit from the rest of the garden delivers. It actually does bless. But I know it's not that easy. Turn to Hosea. It's the third point this morning. Turn to Hosea. Uh, I don't know what page you would be on in your Bible. I would give you a page number if I could. It's one of the minor prophets. You can consult your uh, table of contents if you need to. I'd like for you to see it. I want you to see this book. The first word of encouragement I gave you this morning was to be delighted in and enjoy the word able. Second is to walk in his design And third is to see God as he really is. To see God as he really is. Because as I'm sharing this second part of it, to walk in his design, I wish it were that easy. That you could just, you see the problem in your life. And someone or God through a message or whatever calls you to obedience and repentance. And then Eureka, you're walking in his design. Wouldn't that be nice? We probably wouldn't need him very much if it worked out that way. So that's one of the beauties in the fact that it doesn't work out that way. I know this is not easy, though. I personally, and I bet you have too, you've worn a path to that one tree. Deep ruts going to that one tree. So it's just not easy. So let's figure out God's disposition on this. Let's, let's, let's look at this the way God looks at this. Hosea is a nice guide. Hosea is a, um, I'll just tell the story from the passage, beginning in chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord first spoke to Hosea, or when he first spoke to him, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom for forsaking the Lord. Tough job being a prophet, by the way. I, I suspect that Hosea had dreams of marrying the, that perfect girl, that, that hometown girl, and God says, well, I've got a different plan for you, Hosea. I want you to go marry a prostitute. Okay, because there's going to be a purpose to this. I'm not messing with you. There's going to be a design and a purpose, and you're marrying a prostitute. So he went and took Gomer, this is her name, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. So Gomer goes, and he follows his instructions that God's given him, and he takes Gomer to be his wife. And they start having some children. They have Jezreel. There's some funny names here. Not funny as in ha-ha. Funny as in sort of a bummer. Um, No Mercy is the second kid. The third kid is Not My People. Um, Just kind of a bummer, the names. But anyway, this little family's forming. You know, the little family's shaping up. And um, I think this view of God that I'm about to show you in these next few minutes is going to help you, those of you that see God as this taskmaster. It's just going to hammer you 
when you mess up. Okay, I think this is going to help you view God differently. Hosea is told to go marry this gal. And this book, I think you're going to find in a passage I'm about to show you, tells us not only a lot about Israel, but it tells us a lot about God. Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute, and she's going to illustrate how Israel is acting toward me. And look, here's the the other thing that's illustrated. You're going to illustrate me, Hosea. You're going to show Israel my character. Okay, It's going to be illuminating, I think, for those of you that struggle with a view of God as taskmaster. Look at chapter 3. Verse 1, by this point, Hosea's got a nice little family coming together, family of five, um, funny names for the kids. We won't go there, but, you know, he's got a wife and three kids. And then in chapter 3, Gomer has stepped out. Gomer's left this nice little tidy home environment, and he, she's left him to go back to her old life. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, is a different woman. Go find Gomer, is what he's saying. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought Gomer for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore. Or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. Gomer runs away, runs back. She's made a path to that one tree. She runs back to her life and former work. And Hosea, telling us something about our God, finds her. Does that, first of all, bless anybody else that's worn a path to that tree? He finds her, and he buys her, and he takes her home. He doesn't beat her. He doesn't shout at her. He doesn't slap her around. He doesn't flog her. He doesn't mock her. He buys her. And he takes her home yet again. Man, he promises on the way to be with her as he calls her to fidelity yet again. Hosea is a tough book because there's some really raw language in there about what God says is going to happen and going to happen and what I'm going to do, do to the disobedient and the, the, the unrepentant. And, but chapter 11 tells us who our God is. You can see it illustrated in Hosea in what he does. And you can hear it in these words in chapter 11. I want you to see these. These are beautiful. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son... The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them, and I fed them. 
They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they refuse to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. You can almost hear him deliberating with himself. Listen to what he says next. Listen to what their God, your God, our God says about this relentlessly sinful people. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God. I'm not a man. A man might be done. He says, I'm God. I'm not a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Do you? Can you? See your God this way toward you. Man, does anybody else need to see that in their God? He's not like a man. A man might be done. A man might say, I can't take this anymore. I quit. He hasn't said that and he won't say that. He finds her. He buys her. He calls her to fidelity. He takes her home, and on the way, he says, I will be with you relentlessly. That's our God. That's our God. The last place I'd like to have you look is in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. The Hebrews preacher is calling a church to fidelity, a church on the bubble. Hebrews church is considering going back to Judaism because being a Christian in Rome is hard. And he's calling them to fidelity, calling them to stay the course. And a big part of the development in the book of Hebrews is about what they have in a high priest. They have something so profound in the high priest that is Christ that it becomes the instrument that he uses to call them to fidelity of what, what they have, who Christ is, and what he's done. And look at what, what he says here in chapter 2, verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself being Christ, likewise partook of the same things. He wasn't kind of human. He didn't, didn't just look like a human. He wasn't mostly human. He was fully human. Fully God And fully human at the same time. He partook of the same flesh and blood that we wear. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He died the death that we would have or that we owed. And he died it in flesh that's made of the same stuff that ours is. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people so that he could be an adequate sacrifice. He had to be fully human. Now look what it says next. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Man, he is able to help those who've worn a path to that tree. We have a high priest that's not aloof and disconnected and disengaged and can't relate to the kind of things that we deal with and can't relate to the boulders in our lives. Look over at chapter 4, verse 14. We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hang on, Hebrews church. Hang on, the rest of you. Keep beating those rocks. Keep about the journey of faith, walking in, pursuing holiness. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The great high priest, if anyone has grounds to be impatient and indignant and frustrated with us, but instead we have a high priest, it says here, who understands. We have a high priest that is a beautiful word, sympathetic with our struggles and our weaknesses. He doesn't find you and tell you how sorry you are. He doesn't mock you, rebuke you, and laugh at you. He doesn't scold you and snicker at you. Instead, he says, come here. I understand how hard this is for you. I'm going to find you. I bought you. I'm going to take you home. I'm going to call you to fidelity on the way, but I will be with you. He says, come here. I understand how hard this is for you. Let me help you up. Come to me. I'll cause you to observe and obey in my time and for my glory. You just keep hitting that rock. I'm going to end with a story. It's a borrowed story from Greg Fields. I spent some time with Greg this week, and I'm, he's not in here, so he can't even defend himself. He can, it's a great story. We were talking about this and talking about how dangerous a sermon like this can be and how easily you can present, the, well, here's God's design. Just get your act together and just do it. And he said, man, I had this teacher when I was a kid, and it was a teacher that she just had this ability to influence and encourage in a way like nobody I've ever seen before or since. He told me a story about a test that he took there. He made a 30 on the test, which if you know Greg Fields, you know that's hard to imagine. He can make a 30 on a test, but I believe it. I, you know, He said he made a 30 on the test, and he went to the teacher, and he said, I, you know, look, look what happened here. Look what I've done. You know, and He was expecting her to say, yeah, you need to get it together. You need to start studying. But her response instead was, you got 30% of the material. And he was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, got, I hadn't thought of it like that. He said, the next thing he said, can you talk to my mom? Because my mom's not going to see it that way. <laughs> but maybe next time you'll get 50% of the material. Keep after it, Greg. Man, I love that view of God that says, man, I'm going to find you. 
because I bought you. And I'm going to bring you home. And I'm going to call you to fidelity yet again. And I will be with you. What a great God we have. Let's pray. God, I pray that we can be a people that reflect the kind of God that you are. With ourselves and with each other. That we can encourage one another to relentlessly go after you. To relentlessly deal with those things that are in the way. Those things that cause us so much trouble. Those things that are a reflection of who you are and what you've done in our lives. And what we've been reckoned. Lord, I pray that we can be that people as a church body, corporately, that you'll hear it from this pulpit, that you'll hear it on Wednesday nights in Bible study, that you'll hear it in classrooms, you'll hear it in life groups, this redemptive disposition and this hopefulness, this mindset that repackages failure as one step closer to success. I want to be that kind of pastor I want to be that kind of husband and that kind of dad because you're that kind of God. God, I'm so thankful that what fuels every bit of this work, every bit of this conversation, every bit of these efforts is realizing that by your grace and your mercy that we wear perfection, the perfections of Christ. That you see us in light of what he's accomplished. That you have reckoned his righteousness ours and our sinfulness his. That is great news as we go about this work, Lord. I pray that it fuels us, that it guides us. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to distribute the elements here in a moment, and uh, I'm going to share a passage before we do. It's a passage that we considered this morning already, um, or we at least bumped right up to it. It's right after the passage, no temptation has overtaken you. That's not common to man. God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The topic that we're talking about this morning, about having the ability and having a way out and what we have in the Holy Spirit in this wonderful age that we walk in. The next verse, listen to what he says here. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Be faithful. I'll put my arm around you. Be faithful. I speak as to a sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's fitting that we're having the Lord's Supper right now in this conversation because it's all tied in. The supper is a weekly reminder that we are in union with Christ, that we, God sees us as Christ accomplished his work. God sees us in light of Christ, that we enjoy his benefits as we enjoy him. So we do that every single week. And that, that helps us to flee. It helps us to go after the rocks. And it helps us to endure when the rock doesn't budge, to keep hitting it, because he's already broken it, ultimately. Let's distribute the elements and we'll enjoy this meal together.